So you'll know that as a soundtrack to CSI or a song from The Who, depending on your age. Um, so hi, who are you? What labels do you carry? Like, how do you introduce yourself, you know, in that slightly awkward small talk? Hi, what do you do? And you're like, oh. Um, small confession, I rarely lead with my job title. Not because I don't love my job and I actually think it's amazing, but that's not the biggest thing that defines me. And I think it's much more interesting to say to people, what have you been up to in this week rather than what your job is? So if you're presenting a talk on yourself, what would be your five top headings? Would you talk about your achievements? Would you lead with your degree or your qualifications, first aid certificate, whatever? Would you lead with what your diary's been up to, what you've been doing this week? Would you lead with your character? Would you be brave enough to go, here are the good bits about me and here are the not so good bits about me? What labels did you get given at school? Did you have a nickname? Were you bullied? Were you given some hard stuff? Where do you get your labels from? Well, this is church. It's a safe place. We're all welcome here. Whatever labels you carry, whoever you, whoever's given you a label, you are all really welcome. And I'm really excited about this second talk in the, our series on judges. Um, I really enjoyed getting to know the person of Gideon. Just a quick show of hands. Who thinks they've heard of Gideon before? They've read it, you know, maybe at Sunday school or whatever. Who's like, mm, not so sure I could stand up and tell you about who Gideon is. Okay, cool. I'm a bit like you. I was like, I've heard about Gideon. I know there's something about him and a fleece and stuff. But actually, there's loads in this story that I want to share with us. Um, I've learned loads about Gideon, and that's really helped me see who I am. And I've learned loads about God, and that's just been amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an amazingly good God. And thank you for Gideon and for his story in the Bible and what it has to teach us about who you are and who we are. And I pray that you would open each of our hearts and minds and you would speak to us, that we would hear you and we would put into our lives what you want us to change, what message you want to give to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible or I hear it, I'm a bit like, oh, an angel appeared. Okay. The king killed all the baby boys in the land. Oh, that's nice. Like, <laughs> I want, sometimes it's like over familiar and we're just a bit like blasé about it. So in order for us to really get into the story of Gideon, I really want us to like be there. So we're going to have a whistle-stop tour of bits of information that we'll need, that you'll help, will help you get inside Gideon's story so that we can be there right with him in the story, interacting with God, feeling what it was like to be Gideon, thinking what it was like to be Gideon. So... Uh, this story comes from the country of Israel, um, which, as you will know, is a real country. And there's a group of people called the Israelites. They were a huge group of people who God was working with and teaching and being present with, and they were completely messed up, and God kept completely being their best friend and helping them and sorting them out. Uh, it's an amazing. They were made up of 12 tribes, and they, they would say God, Yahweh, was their God. Not everybody around at that time worshipped God. And one of the tribes was called the Manasseh, and this was Gideon's tribe. And this would be a major factor in his identity, like who he was. That was the tribe he belonged to. Their identity was his identity. Unfortunately, the Manasseh tribe didn't have the best reputation nor the best history. They were really good at forgetting God, and they kept making rubbish choices. So their Hebrew name is like to forget. Not exactly the best reputation to carry. It doesn't get any better for Gideon either. 
because his family group that was part of the Manasseh tribe is called the Abizrites, and they were the weakest, the least, they're really not so great. And Gideon's dad was called Joash. So poor Gideon, his sense of identity, as defined by his immediate family and wider family, wasn't the best. It's kind of like, you're a bit small, you're a bit least, you're a bit forgetful, you're a bit rubbish. So Gideon lived in a place called Ophrah. Now the baddies in the story are the Midianites and the Amalekites. And they're a group of people who did not know God. And um, they were pretty cruel. They worshipped gods called like Baal, who was male, and Asherah, who was female. Now at this time, people would build altars. Depending on which god they worshipped would depend what they put on the altar. So there'd just be mounds of earth or stones um, that they would use to sacrifice. Asherah, people would often build poles to her, kind of wooden carved ones or piles of rock. Now what you need to know for Gideon and his friends were the Midianites were really powerful and really cruel. And they came from where they lived and they would come up to where the Israelite, where the Israelites were and they would steal all their crops. And they would camp out and they would take all their cattle. They didn't just take what they needed and go home. They took what they needed and then destroyed the rest. Pure spite, pure bullying, completely unnecessary. It was a pretty rubbish and it had been going on for seven years. So the Israelites were feeling really oppressed. They were struggling. So unsurprisingly, they, kept, they would go up into the mountains and they would hide their food and their cattle and try and survive and keep it away from the Midianites. And as I say, it had been going on for seven years. This was brutal. So just like us often, in sheer desperation, when there's no other options available, we cry out to God, asking for help. So we're going to encounter Gideon, and he's going about his everyday normal business, albeit he's up a hill threshing corn. So that means he's taking the wheat, and they want the grain, the good bit to make bread and pasta out of, and he's throwing it up in the air so that the chaff floats off. But obviously, because they're doing this in hiding, he's doing it up the hill, under the trees, in a wine press because life is not great for Gideon. So as we begin our story, he's going about his ordinary, everyday business. And unbeknown to Gideon, an angel of God came and sat down in human form next to him under the tree. And often, in my case and your case, Gideon was unaware that God was right next to him. Gideon carries on threshing the wheat. The angel then appears to Gideon and says, God is with you, O mighty warrior. These might not be Gideon's exact words, but this is how it plays out in my head. Eh? You're not God. And you are definitely not God, because have you seen the Midianites and the Amalekites and how horrible they are to us? Because you're a saving God, and this does not look like saving. We are in trouble, we are suffering, and you are not helping us. You could save us like you have in the past with the Israelites when you brought them out of Egypt, but you haven't, and we're stuck here, and it's horrible, and it's your fault. The angel, with lots of patience and kindness in his eye, says, Gideon, go in this strength that is yours. You're going to save Israel from the Midianites. I am authorizing you, I'm sending you. No way. That's not a plan. Me and you, I can't see the details. Have you met the other people who keep oppressing us? This is not going to happen. No plan that I can see can work. And as for me, don't be ridiculous. Have you seen my family and my clan and my tribe? We're the least and the last. 
we're the not importance. I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. I'm no mighty warrior. I'm hiding up in a hill. I don't have the training. No way. Not me. I love the patience of the angel. Gideon, I will be with you. And you will defeat the Midianites. Every one of them. I'm in the business of setting people free. You, with me, together, are going to make this happen. I hope you're there with Gideon, processing the fact that he's having a conversation with an angel of God. I get the sense Gideon is warming up to this vague idea. And so he says to the angel, okay, maybe, but I need proof. I am not going to go off to my huge and certain death to save Israel with serious consequences. I need you to reassure me that you are God and I need a sign. So Gideon says, wait there. The angel does. Gideon legs it off home. And as part of his culture, he prepares a meal, grabs a goat, prepares that, makes a a lovely soup, vegetables and meat juice, lovely, delicious, makes a ton of bread. I don't know how long it took, but anyway, it was flatbread, so it wouldn't have risen. And then comes back, and the angel is still waiting under the tree. And the angel says, right, take that meat, put it on the rock, and I want you to pour the soup, in essence, all over it. Take the bread, make it properly soggy, pour all the juices over it. Gideon did it. And the angel of God stretched out the tip of the stick he was holding and he touched the meat. And immediately fire broke out and burnt it all up. The soggy bread completely burnt up. I hope you're with Gideon in this. Because Gideon did not go, oh, that's nice. Gideon was like, oh my word. He realized he'd seen something incredible, something miraculous, something not normal. And he was slightly terrified. So the angel disappears without Gideon noticing. And the reality of the situation sinks in with Gideon. And he realizes he's come face to face with an angel of God. And he's completely overcome with awe and fear. And sheer panic has set in. And he thinks, I'm going to die. And so he shouts it out, Omar, I'm going to die. But now he's talking directly to God. And God answers. And he says, no, Gideon, you're not going to die. Don't worry. I'm with you. It's okay. If that was me, I'd be a complete wreck. But Gideon is still listening to God. And he realized that something incredible has happened. He's not died, and he has seen God face to face. This is an incredible, miraculous spiritual moment. And I love what Gideon does next. He marks it. So he grabs a pile of earth, rocks, whatever's nearby, and he makes an altar. And he marks this spot. He marks the occasion that says something incredible happened here. So now Gideon's up to speed with God being God. And I don't know how he feels about himself or the proposed task in hand, but he's on board that God is God. And at the moment, that's enough. So in the night, God gives Gideon some instructions. Gideon, I want you to tear down your father's altar, the Baal altar, and chop down that pole to Asherah. And I want you to go up to the top of the hill and build another altar use the Asherah pole as firewood and I want you to go and get your dad's best bull, the prime one, the seven-year-old one and I want you to put that on the altar to me and I want you to light the fire and that's going to be a sacrifice to me. What would you do in that situation? 
if your dad likes cars, would you be like, I'm just going to take dad's best car and put it on an altar and light it? Gideon could have been like outright rejection. No way, God. Not going to do it. He could have been, okay, I'm on board, but can I have another sign, please? Stalling for time. I think we often do this. He gave a partial yes. He said, okay, God, I'll follow your instructions, but can I just do it for the guy down the road, like his altar, not my dad's? Gideon says yes, and he does it. What incredible faith. He follows God's instructions. And the Bible tells us that yes, he was scared. And if you're with him in that story, I think you would be too. So he did it at night, which I think was quite smart. And he also, he took help. So he got 10 people with him. I like the fact that he was practical and used his brains because he couldn't have done it on his own. But he followed God's instructions. Can you imagine the uproar in the morning? I wonder if Gideon hid or whether he just, hmm, wonder what's happened around here. <laughs> to cut a long story short, God protects Gideon from being lynched. And actually it's his dad who calms everybody down. But in the Bible it tells us there's more trouble brewing. Several tribes from the east, the Midianites and the Amalekites and some others, have joined forces and they're basically out to get the Israelites. So now God gives his own self, his own spirit, his Holy Spirit, and he pours it into Gideon. And he fills Gideon up with God's strength and God's courage and God's wisdom and all the good things that Gideon needs for the next phase of Operation Save the Israelites. Hashtag again. So filled with God's spirit, Gideon sends messengers to all the other people of the tribes and he gathers them. And they gather up about 33,000 men. Now what you need to know is there's 135,000 of the opposition gathered nearby, spoiling for a fight. So when Gideon says, God, I really need a sign that this is what you want me to do. I've got some understanding for that. This isn't just, Gideon, are you going to do this? He's got 33,000 men to make the right decision for, and the odds don't look good. So Gideon says, here's how it works, God. He took a fleece from a sheep, and he says, right, I want you, God, to make the sheepskin to be wet and the ground to be completely dry. And he plonked it out and left it overnight. Came back in the morning... It was exactly how he'd asked God to make it. The sheepskin was totally wet and he actually could wring it out and fill a bowl full of water. Rest of the ground, dry. Another miracle. I like this bit. Gideon says, please don't be angry with me, God, but I need another sign. Just so I know it's you, I want you to do it the other way around. I want the sheepskin to be totally dry and I want the rest of the ground to be covered in dew. And in the morning, Gideon went. And of course, because God is God, that's exactly what he found. Bone dry sheepskin, the rest of the ground was wet. Chapter seven and eight are well worth a read. The ending is incredible. Gideon's gone from the least and the last and the not good enough 
and he steps into his identity with God. He is a mighty warrior. What grabbed you in the story? What did you notice about Gideon? What did you notice about God? Did you relate to any of it? Did you disagree with any of it? Or was the bits you were like, "Mm, not so sure about that? I particularly love how Gideon and God keep talking to each other and keep listening to each other. And I love how Gideon is absolutely honest with God. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't give the right answer. He's like God and he lists off what he's struggling with and he talks to him. And God listens and talks back. And all through the story, there's this toing and froing. It's brilliant. There's one thing that I think is really important for us at City to hear. And it's the idea of discerning, figuring out what God wants you to do or doesn't want you to do. So I like how God Gideon talks with God honestly. And I like how he asks for a sign. And I like how God answers. Let me give you an example from my life of a not such a good way to discern stuff. So I was going out with Paul. And we were getting to the point, I was like, I quite like him. I'd quite like to marry him. Is this a good idea, God? So I very clearly remember getting out of my house one day on the way to work, talking with God. And so I said, God, I'll strike you a deal. It was a bit like a fleece, but it wasn't a good idea. I said, okay, if I see three number plates with a P and a J in them on the way from here to work, about a 20-minute drive, then I'll know that you are saying, yes, you can marry Paul. So I consequently oscillated between looking at every single number plate I could see on the drive to work, including cars parked down side streets. And also going, stop it, Fiona, this is not the most appropriate way to be discerning this kind of big decision, whilst also looking at every car going past. I am not recommending this method of discernment. For a start, it's not safe. (laughs) I absolutely needed to use a different method, a different way to figure out what God was saying. And I did use other methods. And I am married to Paul. So about a year after we were married, um, this idea came about that maybe I should give up my job. We both had jobs, but we didn't have any kids. And it just wouldn't go away. This idea about God, we felt God was saying for me to give up my job. Now, I loved being a teacher. Kids are just the best to work with. But actually, the school I was in was a mess. And it was insanely hard work. It was really tough, and I wanted to leave, but I didn't want to leave because I didn't like it. I wanted to leave because that was what God was telling us to do. So maybe we'd learn a little bit more about discerning a little more intelligently. So the other thing you need to know is there was no idea about what was next, and I didn't like that at all because I like a plan, like here's what's going to happen. And so we felt like God was saying leave the job, and I was like, what's next? Silence, nothing, didn't know. So here's what we did do. We prayed. I prayed on my own, Paul prayed on his own, we prayed together. But actually that's a really tricky way to try and discern something as emotional and as big as that. So we were both in a small group which met every week, so there's some lovely older and wiser people in that group. They prayed with us and they prayed for us. I met with my vicar and I chatted it through and we prayed it through. We did a budget, like a a five-year one and a ten-year one, obviously, and we looked at the practicalities of it. We used our brains And looking back, there was another key element to discerning what God was saying. And it's not obvious, but it was integral to how we figured it out. We'd been going to church week in, week out. 
we've been reading our Bible more often than not. We go into our small group regularly. We had really good input so we could recognize God's voice. Because if God had said, I'd like you both to leave your jobs and do something crazy, he'd be like, is that really God's voice? And there's two more things, two more things that really helped us. We were genuinely open to a, a range of responses from God. If God said no, then that was like, okay, we've got it wrong. I'm not going to do that. Or it might have been wait. Or it might have been something else we didn't know. And the other thing is, we asked people who knew would ask us tough questions. They wouldn't just say, yeah, I think you're right. God's telling you to do that. Off you go. They were like, what about this? And have you thought about this? And can I pray for you? And are you really listening to what God's going to say? And I did leave my job. And there's some incredible stories about how in the week that I left my job, I was pregnant, but I didn't know it. And we just bought our house. That kind of timing is God. And just like Gideon, for such a big decision, we kept talking with God. And we did ask for clear signs. And I was obedient, and we d- I did leave my job. As a side note, if you're sat there going, God, I need a sign about whether I should go out with my friends and get drunk tonight. The answer is read your Bible. You don't need a sign from God. He's already told you, don't do it. Okay? You don't need a fleece. That's just basic obedience. And a big theme that I love from the book of Gideon is identity. Gideon got his sense of identity from his immediate and wider family. Their reputation, their history, their circumstances, the events going on around him. And all that said, Gideon, you're the least. That's not true, he wasn't. They said, Gideon, you're rubbish. That's not true, he wasn't. Gideon, you're forgetful. Yeah, that was true, he did forget God. Not all our sources of identity are are good ones. Where do you get your sources of identity from? What about the beauty industry with their wonderful messages? Expectations from work, from family, from other Christians, from friends, from social media, from yourself. What do you say to yourself? I catch myself being really mean to myself, being really rude, being really, put myself down. I wouldn't speak to my kids like that, even when I'm really cross with them. But the way we speak to ourselves really impacts on us. What you read, what you, watch, what you watch, what you listen to, the news you see, the places you go, these expectations are everywhere. The best source and the only true source of identity is God. But I think we need reminding of that. This is the God who made the universe. Who says to each and every one of us, time and time again, I made you, I know you, I love you. I created you. Each one of you, every single person on this planet is important. This is the God who said, your feelings are a part of you. I gave them to you. They are useful. Listen to them. But don't let them be the only thing that drives you. This God who loves us says, I do not judge you on your outward appearance. I'm not interested in whether you're strong or pretty or not. I look at your heart and how you love me, and how you love other people. This amazing God says, I know you. I know you will mess up. I gave you the ability to make choices, and I put in place consequences for those choices. Choose well. 
let me help, let me be with you, let me do life with you. This is the best way. And I love in the Bible, there are so many characters, so many flaws, but time and time again, God is with them and he loves them and he takes them on a journey. And sometimes their character flaws don't disappear, but God still loves them and still works with them. This is a God who says, I love you, I made you, I died for you, I am potty about you. You cannot do anything to earn my love. You are a human being, not a human doing. I love you for who you are, not about anything you can do. And this God says, I am your father. I love you. I am a good God. And I want to do life with you. Let's do it the best way. So this is my identity. My full-blown, total identity. So when I'm asked, who am I? My complete answer is, I'm a child of God. I'm a daughter of the king. Yahweh, the most powerful, loving God. He's my dad. I am fully adopted. I am in his family. You are. You are a son and a daughter of the God who loves you. You can choose to accept or reject it. But to be fully human is to be found in God. God is a God of truth. And sometimes he talks to us about our identity and he tells us truth, but we don't like it. We get uncomfortable because we've all got bits of us that we're ashamed of and we don't like. We're all human, which means we're all broken. Being broken doesn't mean we're useless and past it and unlovable and have no hope. Being broken means we mess up and we make mistakes. We need to own this part of us. We need to be aware of it. Owning our story is hard, but choosing to spend the rest of our lives ignoring it or running away from it is much harder and way more damaging. So we need to listen to the labels that God gives us because they're true even if we don't like them. I love it in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, God says, My grace is made perfect in your weakness. If we're all sorted, we don't need God, but we're all messed up and we need God. And God's love and purpose gets to work through us. We're at our best with God. And you and God together is beautiful. So your story, your experiences, your choices are part of who you are. So your brokenness might involve watching and reading and looking at pornography. That's not okay. It's not helpful and it's hugely damaging. It has a massively harmful impact on how you see yourself and how you see others. Does it mean that you're unworthy of love and a failure and not good enough for God? Not at all. Do you need to do something about it? Yes. Does God still love you? More than we can ever imagine whether you kick your addiction or not. But do you want it to be continue to inform your identity? We need to own our stuff. We need to name it and we need to change it. And it takes courage, to be honest, to own our own story. It's difficult. So let me start. Part of my story involves things that have been done to me, bad choices I've made, and other things that have been around me while I've been growing up. 
So in no particular order, part of my story involves alcoholism, an eating disorder, adultery, sexual abuse, pornography, depression and mental illness, divorce and separation, bullying and death. That's part of my story. It's not all about what I've done, but it does not define my full identity. That's not the core of who I am. God, my Father in heaven, defines who I am truly and accurately. So whilst Gideon didn't have to deal with the constant onslaught of most advertising, which quite frankly we would do well to ignore, I wonder if you ever looked at the world around and, and clocked the messages that get, we get bombarded with all the time. All these messages that I'm going to read out to you, they're not true, but they're in a lot of places. See which ones you've heard of or you recognise. Be perfect. Have everything under control, but make it look effortless. Don't upset or hurt anybody, but do say what's on your mind. Help everybody you can, but also look after yourself. Be really sexy with your husband and wife, but not in the wrong setting, not at school or church or in the office. Don't get too emotional. Don't get too much crying, too upset or wild joy, but don't be too remote and devoid of feelings either. You know, too emotional is a bit hysterical and irrational and too detached while you're, unca you're uncaring and cold-hearted. A lot of messages centre around on being female involve being small, being sweet and being as quiet as possible. You must be perfect and please everybody. See if you recognise the next three. Never be wrong. Never make a mistake, never admit you're wrong and certainly not to anybody else. And Don't take a long time to make a decision. Be decisive, do not change your mind and don't give in to the opinion of others. Always be right. Never show fear. Don't feel it and don't show it. Never be weak. Never back down. Never lose. Coming second is not an option. Don't be physically weak. You must be tough and invincible. Be strong and powerful. And a lot of messages tell us that the definition of being male is don't be weak and be strong in all areas at all times. There are these constant expectations and constant judgments and comparisons, particularly on how we look and particularly on our skills at relationship. Are you a wife or a husband? If not, why not? And if you are, how are you doing at it? And particularly if you're a mum or a dad, are you one? Are you not one? And how are you doing at it? These are not true. They are not from God and they are impossible to achieve. We need to get smart about recognising them and going, no, that is not who I am and that's not who you are. We need to stop listening to them, stop, re stop repeating them. Some sources of identity are subtle. And they're clever because they take a truth and they twist a lie around it. Or they add a value to it. Or they attach extra stuff to it extra details, bad logic. I don't know what your character flaws or joys are. I'm stubborn. 
Does that mean I won't budge on, it, on any views? Does that mean I don't listen to anybody else and never back down? Or does that mean I'm good at persevering and I keep going? Maybe you're quiet. Maybe you're great at creating space for others and getting alongside people and you're not, you're not quick to get into a confrontation. Or does it get added on to it that you're quiet and therefore that means you're insignificant and you don't speak up and you're worthless? I think Gideon was cautious. I think he, well, he considered stuff well. He thought through the implications. He wasn't a knee-jerk reaction, thanks God, got it, me and, the, me and the Israelites, off we go to war. He needed a sign. He needed three signs. This was a big task. But he was obedient, even though he was cautious. He didn't sit in trying to minimize uncertainty and doing nothing. I think we need to recognize the truth and the lies that get mixed up together and makes it harder to spot. We talked at the beginning about unconscious uh, labeling and how our minds, because we're human, we make links and we think things without realizing what we've thought. Recently, I was reminded about how we all have these and how powerful they can be. So last year, me and the kids had a song that we loved listening to. Um, we would dance around the kitchen and sing it a lot, and it was one of our favourites, and we have very lots of fond memories of uh, uh, singing it out together. Have a listen. To see you later, gotta hit the road, gotta hit the road. The sun ain't changed in the atmosphere, architecture unfamiliar. I could get used to this. Time flies by in the yellow and green. Stick around and you'll see what I mean. Presumably you're all familiar with George Ezra and Shotgun. It's a great song. We love it. But it wasn't until several weeks later I realised that I'd made an unconscious decision. My mind had made links that I hadn't realised I'd done. Now, this unconscious link had no value attached to it. It wasn't a negative or a positive thing. I just made stuff up without realising it. Curious? Well, from the sound of his voice, I thought he was black. And it wasn't until I saw him, I went, oh, you're white, which then made me realise how I joined up something in my head that wasn't true. It's not a judgement thing, but we all do it. We all make links without realising it. And we just need to be more aware of what we're thinking. Because often we can, most of the time, we can keep our mouth shut and not say something. But back in the back of our head, we're thinking stuff. Because if you don't talk about it, if you don't recognise it, you can't deal with it. Some of us need to work on our label, our identity. And some of us need to be, think really through the labels we give others and how we think and talk about them. So what do you think when I go, all politicians are? Donald Trump is. That kid with a hoodie on walking down the street is. Immigrants are. Refugees are. Those in debt, those from the council estate, those who vote Tory, Labour, Green, BNP. The list goes on. We need to be honest about what our knee-jerk reactions are. Yes, let's talk about specific actions of specific people. Let's seek to understand each other. It won't kill you trying to see somebody else's viewpoint. You can still disagree, that's okay. But simply just labelling an individual or a group of people as wrong, bad or evil is really unhelpful. 
typing or yelling at each other, you're wrong and I'm right, is not effective, it's not loving, and it's not godly. What labels do we give out to others? Do we see everybody else in York, in England, in the world, as my brother or sister? I can't put my hand on my heart and say, yes, I do, because I don't. But let's try and be aware of the labels that we give about how we define somebody else's identity. And let's prayerfully and courageously follow Jesus' example of loving the person and recognizing their intrinsic humanity, even if we completely disagree with them. We still need to see them how God sees them. So we're going to take a few minutes. And you've got three things to do. We're going to think about, we're going to pray about, and you can chat with the person next to you. What labels have I worn? Do I carry? And if they're from God, wear them with pride. That's who you are, and they're good, and they're truthful. Don't go for it, but in the moment, you've got um, a sheet of paper to help you process, but underneath is, it's called the Father's Love Letter, and it's a load of bits from Scripture, from the Bible, that talks about a letter from God, how he sees each one of us. So if you're struggling to find who you are, then read through that, underline, write out, remember the ones that strike a chord with you. Think about the labels you have that you've been given, and if they're false and they're wrong, bin it. Don't listen to it. That's not a part of who you are. Consciously choose to ditch it. And then pick through the labels that are a mixture of truth and lies. Hold on to the truth and ditch the bits that are wrong. Another one of my favourite songs, which I'm really sorry, Alan, I know you don't like it, is um, This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. And it's borderline theologically bang on, not always, but it's great. So we're going to play that to give you some time to think, to pray, to chat. What's your identity? Who are you? What do you need to grab hold of and wear with pride because that's who you are? And what do you need to get rid of because that is not who you are? Grab your sheets, let's go.